Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey church, how we doing? Woo! Hey, good to have you. Thanks for joining us online as well. My name is Pastor Peter Anderson. And I'm a senior pastor here. If you're new, uh, like Jeff said, we would love to, to meet you out on the, the patio afterwards. Um, and also, like Jeff said, man, we got a bunch of junior hires up at, uh, up at camp. They're up at Hume Lake. And uh, I know some of you are like, why are they at Hume Lake? How come we're not going to, to Sugar Pine? Sugar Pine's where we need to go, um, just to, you know, put fears at ease. Uh, our high school students, as well as our kids, are, are heading to, to, uh, to Sugar Pine for camp in a, in a few short weeks. Um, but Sugar Pine was only offering a junior high and high school combined winter camp. And we thought it was important for junior hires to have the opportunity to be junior hires by themselves without high schoolers uh, involved in the mix as well, because as you can probably imagine, Imagine a sixth grade boy is dealing with much different things than a senior female. Um, and so uh, we wanted to make sure that, that they got that experience too. Um, but, uh, but many of you may know that I was, I was a youth pastor for this. So like camp and like mission trips and like all those crazy things is something that, that I got to do uh, regularly. Um, and uh, one of the questions that would always come up, I mean, uh, oftentimes would come up was this question of why do bad things happen to good people? Peter, why is it that bad things happen to good people, you know? And, and they would talk about God being this loving God and, and all these different things. Well, how come then a loving God would send people to hell, right? And so these are the, those kind of sorts of questions and having to sort through that and having to, to answer questions on like a, a seventh graders level and like a juniors level and like all of those different things. That's a, that's a difficult thing to be able to explain. Even to adults in the room today, that's a hard question that oftentimes we have to grapple with is why would a loving God send good people to hell? And so today we're continuing in our series called The Creed. And in this series, we're just walking through our statement of faith. We're just saying, hey, this is what it is that we believe about all of these different doctrines that we have. And so we started at the very beginning of the year and we started with uh, what it is that we believe about the Bible, then the Trinity, then God, then Jesus, then Holy Spirit. And today we get the opportunity to talk about us. Um, I know all of you are like, yes, I finally get to talk about me in church. Um, it's kind of depressing, though, because we're going to talk about the theology of humanity. Um, and uh, I will tell you that, that as I was working through this theology of humanity, I realized that it would be a very sad spot for us to stop at the end of theology of humanity. And so because of that, we're not just dealing with our humanity today, we're also going to deal with the doctrine of salvation today. And so essentially, because of what we believe about God, and ourselves, this is what happened when it comes to our salvation. Okay, but going back to that question of why would a good God allow people to go to hell, or why would a good God send people to hell? Okay, maybe a, a variation on that, or maybe if we take it one step further, we would all have to come to terms with, with this question. We'd have to answer this question, is man inherently good or inherently bad? Is man inherently good or inherently bad? This is a question that, that all of society wrestles with at some point in their lives. So if you came with somebody today, turn to them and tell them what you think. Is man good or bad? Go ahead. Have that. I'll allow you to talk in a church. Go ahead. Maybe it's a trick question. I don't know. We'll see. 
So the answer to that question, maybe, maybe we need to understand what good actually, how would we define good? Because good can be defined different ways. There's a, a famous theologian and author, his name is G.K. Chesterton. Um, and G.K. Chesterton was kind of a contemporary of C.S. Lewis. So for all of you who have read anything C.S. Lewis, right, that's like theology 101. You feel like you actually become a Christian once you read anything that C.S. Lewis wrote in any way, shape, or form. Um, and so uh, G.K. Chesterton was also a British guy, also lived at the same time as C.S. Lewis, um, and he was very, very witty, very, very funny, um, and very, very dense uh, in his theology. So he's one of those guys, you read one page of his book, and you go to flip the page, and you're like, hold on, I need to go read that page again. I didn't internalize any of that. So G.K. Chesterton, this is what he wrote about the word good. He said, the word good has many meanings. For example, if a man were to shoot his grandmother at a range of 500 yards, I should call him a good shot, but I would not necessarily call him a good man, right? Like, like those are two extremes of the word good, and we can use those things interchangeably, right? Kind of a morbid piece of information there, but still, I mean, substitute grandmother with dog if that makes you feel better, whatever. Not that grandmothers and dogs are interchangeable, just for clarity's sake. So, but maybe you've never wrestled with that question, or maybe you've never wrestled that question at, at like a base level. Is man good or bad? But your answer to that question will largely shape your worldview. Almost everything that you believe about the world can kind of be boiled down to that in regards to your, your worldview. People are actually, society is split on the subject. Society is at like almost split 50-50. A few years ago, uh, debate.org, it's like this open source website, and they just poll people with different difficult questions like this. And so in their, in their polling, the question was, is human nature good or evil? The results, they're not scientific, but they, they show 49% of people said that man is good, and 51% of people say that man is evil, so if you think man is good, if this is the worldview that, that maybe you take, there will always kind of be this reliance on society to do the right thing, even though it would take them a long time to do so, right? So at, at, at some level, eventually, because man is good, we will eventually get to this state of utopia because I can rely on the goodness of man to be able to get there. And so whether it's through legislation, whether it's through like good works of just like, you know, good, good people, uh, social work, you know, we want to we wanna have world peace, we want to end world hunger, social, social justice is, is within reach because eventually man is good and so we will eventually choose the correct outcome. That's kind of where we have to land if your worldview is that, that man is good, that utopia, like I said, is within reach. And I don't know about you, but over the course of uh, world history, I have yet to see that happen, this idea of utopia. And doing those things isn't necessarily bad. Doing those things is actually good. Yeah, we want, we want social justice. Yes, we want to end world hunger. Of course we want world peace. Like we want all of those things regardless of our worldview. And so that's, that's if man is good. But if you believe man is bad, then you're going to have to recognize man's need for something greater than himself to, to achieve the same ends. Because at some point, every single one of us wants what's good for society. Like our end goal for everyone, 
There's probably a few outliers, but for the vast majority of people, it's the same, right? We are for humanity. We are for humans. We are for ending world hunger. We are for social justice. Like everybody has those same desires. How we get to those desires, though, is the thing that really is up for debate. And so the idea that man is inherently bad or man is inherently evil, if you're new to church, this may be hard for you, that is actually where the Christian worldview stands, that man is inherently evil, ultimately bad and sinful. And because of that, we need someone to intercede on our behalf. That's where we land. So let's go through, let's listen to our statement of faith regarding humans, okay? This is what it says. It says, people are made in the spiritual image of God to be like him in character. Remember a couple years ago, or a couple weeks ago, we talked about the character of God. We talked about like who God is and the fact that he has these, these different um, attributes, these, these attributes that some of them we can have and some of them we can't have, the communicable and incommunicable attributes, right? Like that spiritual image, the character of God, that is how we are created. And the cool thing about this is people are the supreme object of God's creation. We are the pinnacle. Nothing is beyond us. Everything else that God created in Genesis said, God said, it is good. When he got to man, he said, it is very good. Okay? Everything else was an A. We got the A plus. Not because of anything we did, but cherry on top for God, right? And so that's this idea. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. And here's the hard part. Oftentimes we like to stop there in our theology. We're like, yep, we're the best. God said so. Also my mom says so on a regular basis, right? Like that's where we want to land. But here's, here's the problem. Here's the, the turn here in our, uh, our creed. It says, although every person has tremendous potential for good, all of us, Say all of us. Thank you. All of us are marred by an attitude of disobedience toward God called sin. The sin separates people from God and causes many problems in life. So that's where it is. It says, hey, look, we are God's pinnacle. We are God's creation. We are made in the character of God. We are made in the image of God. We are made in it like this is, like that is who we are. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. But, man, we're disobedient and sinful and ultimately evil. And the sin that we have separates people from God, separates us from God. Genesis 1.27 it even tells us, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So things started off, and man, things were, things were good. You know, we're walking in the garden with God. We're having regular conversations with him. We're like, hey, man, this is, this is great. Adam and Eve are hanging out like, like this is perfect creation. And God is like, hey, man, do whatever you want. You have dominion over the entire earth. Just know there's this one tree over here. I don't want you to eat anything off of that tree. Just don't do that one thing. And like a three-year-old child, Adam and Eve decide that, hey, that one thing I'm not supposed to do, it actually sounds like a pretty great idea. Let's go do that one thing God told us not to do. And so we go, they went, they ate from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and from that point forward, humanity fell. That's when sin enters in, in Genesis chapter 3. 
So because of that, because of that, we have both a sin nature and we have a propensity to sin. All right, we're going to go into the classroom here. I know last week we were in the classroom for a little bit. There's two theological terms we need to understand this morning. Okay, the first, the first theological term you need to understand is inherited sin. Okay, inherited sin. This is the sin nature that like, hey, man, all of us are, like, have a propensity to sin on a regular basis. Every single one of us. Okay, babies, when they come out of the womb... And they're sinful, especially those who don't sleep through the night. You know what I'm saying, young moms? Like, you get it. There's sinful babies right there. And then they grow up, and, and they're two and three, and their favorite word is mine, and all they care about is self-preservation, right? Because they have that little candy stash underneath their pillow that they're like, I can hide this from my siblings, right? And then they continue to grow up, and, and they struggle through, through adolescence and adulthood and all that stuff, and they, they are full-grown sinners just like the rest of us, right? We have this propensity to sin. We have inherited, inherited a, a sin nature. And so that's the idea of, of, of original sin, that all of us, every single day, are going to sin. That is our nature. Then there's another Another word, so that's inherited sin or original sin. Okay, the other one is imputed sin. And this is a more difficult one for us to be able to grasp, mostly because we don't use the word imputed very often. Yeah, this idea of, of imputed sin is, is that the Adam, he's the head of the entire human race, right? And Adam caused every single person after him to be born into a fallen condition or, or a sinful state. So it, it, going back to inherited sin real quick, I, I forgot to give you the, the verse for it. Romans 5, 12 to 14, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, all of us sin. Verse 13, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given, Old Testament, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Okay, that's inherited sin, that all of us are going to sin. Imputed sin is an attribution or, or a crediting of something. Okay, so imputed sin is Adam's guilt, Adam and Eve, their guilt, specifically Adam, okay, because he's the head of all of humanity. His sin, that one sinful act, because of that, all of us are now charged as guilty because of what he did. Does that make sense? We aren't guilty of that sin. We are guilty, though, and it has been credited to us, kind of like as, a, as, a, as an account, that all humans are counted as having sinned in Adam. And so we, because of that, we deserve the same punishment for sin as Adam. So the term impute. Okay, and this is what I'm sure a lot of us are struggling with. The term impute, it's, it's a legal and kind of a, a financial term. And it means to, to designate any action, word, or thing as credited to another person's account. Okay, so you parents out there, the, the, there, there was an imputation that happened from my account to my parents' account. And I've told this story before, but when I was in junior high, I decided the, the smart thing to do was to shoot a BB gun at my neighbor's sliding glass door, okay? That door then shattered, and I cried. It's not funny. I said I cried. No. 
And so because of that, there was a financial issue that I could not take care of as a junior high student. There was hundreds of dollars that my parents were going to have to pay. So my account was imputed to my parents and they then had to take care of it. And then granted, I did yard work for like the rest of my life. I think I'm still working off that sliding glass door as a matter of fact, right? So that's the idea of imputation, that it is credited to someone else. Okay, forget about anything good or bad, just it is credited to somebody else on their account. So biblically, Adam's sin was imputed to all of his descendants, and they are to be dealt with as guilty. That means all of us. It doesn't mean they're personally guilty of Adam's sin, only that his sin was credited to their account. So my parents were not guilty of shattering my neighbor's sliding glass door. I was still guilty of that, but they now owed them because of it. Does that make sense? So every, every single person participates in the guilt and penalty of Adam's original transgression. So Romans 5.18, it says, Consequently, just as one trespass, taking of the fruit, resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. And we'll get to the second half of that in just a second. But we need to recognize that we will always then, from that point forward, fall short of God's glory. Every single person. The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23a, it says, for the wages of sin is death. And we'll get to the second part of that passage in a second, but I just want to let that hang out there for a second. That I don't think often enough we come to terms with our spiritual condition before Jesus. That the wages of sin is death. Left to our own devices, this is what we deserve, is death. And that doesn't feel good for us. In our culture, we don't even like the word sin, much less being told that we are all sinners. It's probably a lot more politically correct to say, I'm a good person who occasionally makes mistakes. Paul says, all have sinned. Even if you've been to our church a lot, you'll recognize the end of every service, we end with the ABCs, right? Admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior, right? You're admitting that you're a sinner. Like that is this portion. So that admission is saying, hey, look, I am a sinner. And I also recognize that the wages of that sin is my death. And just so you're aware, it's not just those who confess that they're sinners. All of us are sinners. The entire world are sinners. And the repercussions of that sin is death. So hear me. The only thing that you are entitled to on this earth is a spiritual and a physical death. That's it. Welcome to church. And if we were to end with our doctrine of humanity today, that's where we would end. That, and so I, I thought to myself, hey, maybe that's not a good place. Maybe that's not like good news for us to end with. Maybe, maybe we need to end this thing on a little bit more of an upswing because our spiritual condition is death, spiritual and physical death, spiritual in the sense that if Jesus is not Lord of your life, you are going to hell. And physical in the sense that we are all going to die one day. That's the doctrine 
of humanity. And, and, and in a world that says we can be who we want to be, that creature comforts are the most important thing we can gain in regards to our, to our happiness, that mom and dad said, hey, whatever you want to do, you can, just, you can just try your hardest and be a good person, man, you're going to be great. But the idea of death is foreign to us and heading towards death is foreign to us, even though all of us know it to be a reality. And oftentimes we just make the mistake of thinking, well, if I'm just a good person, well, they, were so, they lived such a good life. You can do nothing to gain eternal life. Hear me on that. You can do nothing to gain eternal life. And again, that's hard for us. And even as, as pastors, that's one of the hardest funerals that we have to do. Is the idea of like, hey, yeah, no, they, they didn't go to church very often, but they were, man, they were really, really good person, so I'm sure they're going to heaven. Like, uh, do I talk to them about their theology? Do I just let them mourn? What do I do with that? Doesn't matter how shiny your life is. Doesn't matter how philanthropic you are. Doesn't matter how many quilts you knit. Doesn't matter any of those different things about being good. Doesn't matter how much money you give to the homeless person on the side of the street. You cannot earn your way into heaven. The good news, though, is that God didn't leave us there. So Romans 6, 23, the full thing, for the wages of sin is death, heaviness, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even going through into verse 24, it says, and all are justified by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ, or through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So verse 24 talks about this idea of righteousness by faith. As a quick aside, anybody know how people in the Old Testament before Jesus came to die on the cross got to heaven? You guys ever thought about that? Like timeline-wise, you're like, hold up. All those people like Abraham, Moses, Isaac, like all those guys that we consider like, like giants of the faith back then, like did, did they go to heaven? Because Jesus didn't die on a cross yet, and it talks about the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans and that the only way that we can get eternal life is through Jesus. So how is it that people pre-Jesus got to heaven? Paul actually talks about this idea that, that Abraham, that his faith was credited to, credited to him as righteousness. So because of the fact that he had faith, God still credited, him, credited it to him as righteousness. So even as Abraham, right, the father of the Jews, was declared righteous by his faith, he was declared righteous uh, before the law came into place. It is, it is his faith that turned it. And because of this, believers have, have priceless, we have these priceless spiritual blessings that we get to enjoy because of the fact that, that Jesus came and died on a cross on our behalf, that we have this peace with God, we have access to God, we have joy, we have hope, we have love, we have his spirit living inside of us that we talked about last week. And some of us may be sitting out there thinking, well, hold on, if my, if my sin has been taken care of by God's grace, how, why then does it matter how I live? I can live however I want then, right? Because all of my sins have been taken care of, that even though, yeah, my spiritual state was death and Christ has now covered all of those sins, so because of that, I can go on living however I want. That's the idea of cheap grace, that, that God doesn't just call us to, to pray a prayer and be done with it. And yep, I'm going to heaven. I said some words out loud. 
This idea of, of faith and moving consistently towards God. It brings us back to our statement of faith and what we believe about salvation. It says this. It says, salvation is God's free gift to us, but we must accept it. We can never make up for our sin by self-improvement or good works. Only by trusting in Jesus Christ as God's offer of forgiveness can anyone be saved from sin's penalty. Sin's penalty? Death. When we admit all of our sin, turn from our self-ruled life, and turn to Jesus in faith, we are saved. Eternal life begins the moment one receives Jesus Christ into his or her life by faith. So eternal life begins at the point of salvation. Doesn't begin once you die. Eternal life begins at the point of your salvation. So Jesus has taken all of that sin. He's taken all of that imputed sin. He's taken that inherited sin nature, all the sin that, that we sinned yesterday, the sin that we're going to sin today, the sin that we will sin tomorrow. He is taking care of every single piece of it. And so if that's true, how is it? How is it that we get this eternal life. So my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Romans 10, 9 and 10. You want to know how you inherit eternal life? Right here. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. That means made in right standing with God. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And so we think about this verse, like, oh, that's it? That's all I have to do in order to be saved? I just have to, have to say some words? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. And also I have to just believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But it's this idea of faith in your heart. We've talked about numerous times that, that what it is that you believe should produce action in your life. So belief should dictate your action. So if you are not actively moving towards Jesus, if your life is not representing Jesus more today than maybe it was yesterday, maybe your faith needs to be called into question at that point. Like, do you actually have faith? So in other words, God came, Christ came on, on our behalf, and as we have that, that sin that was imputed to us from Adam, that guilty nature, we are guilty even by association. We've been given the black plague even though we didn't have a choice in the matter. Jesus has now stepped in on our behalf. And this is one of my favorite things about who Jesus is. Where we once had imputed sin. This idea that we were credited as guilty for something that we didn't do. Christ now steps in and has imputed righteousness on us, again, for something that we did not do. It's this beautiful imagery that we have here where, where Adam messed up and, and, and he condemned the whole world, the original Adam. You know what, what, what Christ's other name is? Second Adam. Now the second Adam, as the first Adam imputed sin upon all of us, guilt upon all of us, Christ's second Adam comes in as now imputed righteousness on all of us. So as I was talking about this idea of imputed sin earlier, and some of you maybe felt uncomfortable, like, hold up, that's not fair. I didn't do that. I didn't eat the apple. That was his bad decision. How come I'm paying for his bad decision? But then you're okay with Jesus coming 
and imputing righteousness on you, even though you did nothing to get that righteousness imputed upon you, you can't have it both ways. You can say, hey, you know what? Yep, I am guilty as I stand. That even as a baby, I'm guilty as I stand. But I also recognize that I am now righteous because of something that somebody else did on my behalf. And so Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross has now given us eternal life because we've been imputed, we have imputed righteousness upon us. In the same way that every single one of us, like I said, we're counted as sinners because of someone else's choice and our, and our own volition as well, we now get to spend eternity with Christ because of someone else's choice. We have imputed righteousness for those who believe. And we need to be consistently aware of the fact. We need to consistently be aware of the fact of our spiritual state before Christ. And now be aware of our our spiritual state after Christ. And all of us at some point, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or you're not a Christian yet at all, we need to take a step back and look at what our spiritual state is. The individual's spiritual state. And so maybe, man, you're living in this idea of, of cheap grace recently. That, that, that you have made choices in your life. At some point you said yes to Jesus. Maybe it was at junior high camp when, when you were in seventh grade. I don't know. But you said yes to Jesus and you started living this life that was a, man, you were trying to become more holy every single day. And then more recently in your life, you're like, you know what? Yeah, I know I shouldn't do that, but that's okay. God's got it covered. I know I shouldn't do that, but God's got it covered. And it turns into a regular lifestyle for you. That you are not actively trying to turn from your sin anymore. That's the idea of cheap grace. You're like, you know what? I know I'm not supposed to do it, but I'm just going to continue to do it anyway. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're in here and you have never yet said yes to Jesus in the first place and you are only living in this idea of inherited sin and imputed sin and you have not taken advantage of this imputed righteousness. That you haven't made that decision of faith in your heart. That you haven't maybe professed those those words. That I believe that that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is my, my Savior forever. And it's difficult, and it can take that step of faith to be able to do that. There's a famous uh, a tightrope walker, and I've shared this once before, but there's a famous tightrope walker, and, and he strung a cable from one side of Niagara Falls to another, right? And everybody's like geeking out, like, yeah, what's this guy going to do? And he gets on that tightrope, and he, he walks across, and he comes back, and everybody's cheering. He's like, yes! That was awesome, so cool. And so then he's like, hey, who, who thinks I can do this with, with a wheelbarrow? And they're like, yeah, you can do it with a wheelbarrow. And he goes across Niagara Falls, the wheelbarrow, and gets to the other side, comes back, and yeah, woo, everybody's freaking out. He's like, all right. Now, who thinks I can do it with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And they're like, yeah, you can do it with somebody in the wheelbarrow, no problem. And he's like, all right, I need a volunteer. Silence. Like, no, nah, I'm good. I, I, don't, I think you could probably do it, but I'm not willing to take, take that, that risk. Trusting Christ is not simply assenting to the facts of the gospel message. There is a decision that implies actually getting into the wheelbarrow at some point. There is, there is a decision that implies, hey, at some point I have to take that, that step of faith 
with God that entails pursuing him regularly, opening up your Bible, reading his word, praying with him and to him, serving those around you who need to be served, meeting, other, meeting with other people who, who know who Jesus is as well. The question is, why does it, does it matter? This matters because we need to be aware of our spiritual state, like I said. Someone who is an addict cannot begin recovery until they recognize their need for recovery. And this is one of the biggest issues we face today in Christianity, is that we are a part of a society who does not believe there is anything wrong with them. We, we have individuals in our life who think that they have, that, like their spiritual state is fine, that I'm good, I live a good life, I live a happy life, I'm not mean to anybody, I even mowed my neighbor's lawn last week, like I'm good, I'm, I'm fine. Individuals don't believe they are in need of saving. Actually, almost 50% of the world assume people are inherently good when asked, and this is where it becomes an issue. So going back to that original question is, why do bad things happen to good people? The question's flawed. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people, and good things happen to bad people. Or why would a, a God who is loving send people to hell? Yeah, God's loving. He's not sending anybody to hell. Our trajectory was hell already. God in his loving kindness said, hey, look, I recognize your trajectory. I recognize that, that your sin nature, imputed or inherited, that your sin has you on a trajectory for hell. So you know what I'm going to do? Because I'm a loving God, I'm going to send my son on your behalf to rescue you from the trajectory that you're already on so you can have eternal life. The hope of salvation comes from God. God has good in store for you. He is for you. He fights for you. He sent his son to die for you. Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. God is for you. It doesn't matter what odds are against you, God is for you. It doesn't matter what circumstances seem insurmountable, God is for you. It doesn't matter how dark and hopeless your situation looks, God is for you. It doesn't matter what sin that you participated in yesterday, God is for you. God is for you. He is going to give you a, a resurrection body like flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So he's going to give you a new body. He's going to give you a new spirit, the, like the whole thing so you can see his glory. And he is going to show it to you. And my purpose today is the same as, as the purpose of Romans 5.2. that you may boast and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We don't oftentimes look at different catechisms and statement of faiths and creeds and that sort of thing, but according to the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 
You were created. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You're created to glorify God and enjoy him. And I would specifically say, like, enjoy his glory. You were created for that. And then sin came in, but then Jesus came in. And so now we get the opportunity to enjoy him and glorify him forever. So regardless of what your spiritual state used to be, Jesus has made you new if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips that he is Lord. And he is indeed for you. And so how do we as a church apply this? Because I believe the church is God's plan A for the world. It is our responsibility to declare the good news of Christ to an incredibly broken world. So we have to love people as we enter into conversations regarding our spiritual state and what God did for us. And again, it's not your job to convict people of sin. It's not your job to go out and say, hey, you're, you're a dirty sinner, you're going to hell. That's the job of the Holy Spirit to convict people. It's our job to tell people about the hope that we have in Jesus and then hope the Spirit uses that conversation to stir their hearts. You are not responsible for saving anybody, but you are responsible for making sure people know about the hope that we have in Jesus and what it is that we are about. That's why we talk about oikos here. You don't know what oikos is, it's a Greek word, it means household. And essentially, the way we phrase this is that, that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people in your life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. You already have people in your world whose spiritual state is bankruptcy, who they have imputed sin, they have an inherited sin nature, and they have not yet called upon the name of Jesus and don't yet have the faith in their heart for that imputed righteousness. And so it is our job as the church to make his name known to those people who are already in our world. And so if you said yes to Jesus, your job is to now become more like Jesus as you continuously and continually share about Jesus. That's our responsibility. And so today, just for a second, I know like it's, it's, I'm, I'm over and it's time for communion right now, so I'm going to invite the band up. But, but as we do communion, as we receive communion today, I want you to think about your spiritual state, where you were before Jesus stepped in, and then take an opportunity to just thank Jesus for what he did for you. If you don't have communion elements, you can just raise your hand. We've got ushers, we've got a couple people who will be able to raise them nice and high. They're coming through right now. Keep them up. But if you, like, like as we are receiving the elements today, I want you to think about what Christ did for you, what Christ did in your life. And it makes it so much more, so much bigger than we assume that he would willingly step into humanity, willingly step into and towards death and death on a cross so each and every one of us can be counted as righteous. So I just want you to thank him today as we get to communion.
We believe here in what's called an open table. That means you don't have to be a member of our church in order to receive communion, but we would ask that you have placed your faith in Christ before you receive communion with us. And so even on the tales of a message that talks about sin and talks about salvation and all of that stuff, if you need to re-up with Jesus, maybe you're somebody who has said yes to God, but you're living in that cheap grace. If that's you today, I would ask you to pray along with us as we go through the ABCs. There's probably another category of people in here, though, too. Someone who, who maybe hasn't actually said yes to Jesus, hasn't actually made that profession of faith in their life before. If that's you today, the same thing. Pray along with us. Commit your life to Christ today. Thank him for imputing righteousness on you when before all it was was spiritual bankruptcy. Why don't we go to prayer and then we'll receive communion together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. God, I just want to sit in that. Thank you for your son. That before he came and died on a cross for each and every one of us, that we had no way, no clear path back to you that our spiritual state was always bankruptcy from the time that Adam and Eve fell till current day. So God, I'm sorry for that sin nature that I have. I'm sorry for the sins that I commit today, the ones I'll commit tomorrow, the ones I committed yesterday. Father, I'm sorry for that. And I also recognize that I am, I am guilty as I stand. But God, you took that. Your son took that. And so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you this morning, if you just need to, to give that to Jesus today and say, say, I've tried doing it on my own. I, 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 am, I am guilty where I stand and I need a savior on my behalf. I need somebody to step in because I recognize that I'm, I am actually bad. I'm inherently bad. And I need somebody to intercede for me. If that's you today, just pray along with me and say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I admit that I can never get to your standard. And I recognize that the wages of that sin is death. I admit that. But B, I believe you sent your Son on my behalf who came and died on a cross, who took all of that sin and imputed righteousness on me. I believe that, Father. And see, I choose to follow you every single day, that I refuse to live with cheap grace, that I, I refuse to stay where I'm at, that I would do my best to become more holy, to look more like your son every single day, Father. I choose that. God, thank you for making me new. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.